beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Laura Tremaine. And while I always have 10 things to tell you, today I have just one very important thing. My new book, The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs, launches April 4th. And this episode is a sample of the audiobook version, which I read myself. If you like listening to this podcast and you're used to my voice here, then you might like hearing me read the full book to you. If you like to read on the go, the ebook version gives you instant gratification. But if you like to underline good sentences and concepts and love having a pretty book on your shelves, or if you like to pass along a great book when you're done reading it, then you'll for sure want either the hardcover or the paperback, all of which are available on release day. But whatever version you choose, audiobook, ebook, hardcover, or paperback, it would mean the world to me if you would order The Life Council right now. As a pre-order, if you're listening to this episode in the last week of March, or on my launch week in the first week of April. Pre-orders and launch week orders mean the most to authors because strong sales numbers around launch time signals to publishers, media, retailers, and to other readers that this is a good book worth paying attention to. And when good books get good attention, authors like me get to keep writing books and readers like me get to keep reading them. I wrote this book, The Life Council, because I needed to. This was the book that I needed to read when I was in my 20s and finding my footing in the real world. And this was the book I wish I'd had in my 30s when I was a new mom and super lonely. And this was the book I finally decided to write for myself in my 40s as I navigated friendship change. In fact, this excerpt you're about to listen to starts with a story about a friendship reckoning a conflict that I had during the pandemic. Because I haven't been the perfect friend, I felt ill-equipped to write a book about friendship, 
But I also really wanted to be having this conversation about our most important relationships. And what I was learning, I wanted to have this all on a bigger scale. And that's how I want you to approach reading The Life Council. It's not prescriptive. I am sharing my thoughts and friends with you in this book, but I wanted to spark conversations in your life and entries in your journal. It's like a big conversation in book form. I also don't want you to be intimidated by the subtitle, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs. The 10 archetypes of friendship that I write about here, they are meant to be relationships across the whole of your life. You're not going to have all 10 of them at once, probably, and many of these relationships will overlap. So do not start reading this book from a place of shame and scarcity. I want this idea of the Life Council to elevate all of your relationships and your own spirit, whether you're in a time of loneliness or abundance. Now, this book doesn't have traditional chapters, per se. It is made up of three sections. The first one is called The Most Important Relationship. The second section lays out the actual Life Council members. And the third section is called What I've Learned. The sample you're about to listen to is from the first section, and there is a piece called A Friendship Reckoning, and then a piece called Five Friendship Philosophies. If you like what you hear, you can go to thelifecouncilbook.com to learn more, or you can pre-order from your favorite online or in-person retailer. If you pre-order The Life Council before April 4th, you're eligible for my pre-order bonuses. Those three bonuses are a beautifully designed discussion guide that will be perfect to use if you plan to read the book for a book club or in a group setting, or even if you just want to use those discussion guides as journal prompts. I'm also hosting an exclusive book club for those who pre-order the book, where we'll all meet together on Zoom to discuss and walk through The Life Council together. And finally, if you pre-order The Life Council, you'll get access to my private podcast series called The Secret Tapes, a series of interviews with some of the people that I write about in the book. I promise you, you want to hear their side of the stories I tell. So now, here is the audiobook excerpt of my new book, The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs. A Friendship Reckoning We were almost a year into the COVID-19 pandemic as I stood in my backyard, carefully spacing two lounge chairs six feet apart. I placed a pattern blanket on the ground and loaded it with two small trays of snacks. It was dark outside already, so I added candles to the blanket, making the whole scene feel more like a date night than a friendship reckoning. Officially, we were meeting because I had hurt her feelings in a group text the week before, but we both knew the coming conversation was bigger than that. At first, I hadn't realized how much the casual exchange had stung my friend, but then again, intention and tone are often misread in text. The social isolation of the Los Angeles lockdown made all of our friendship communications a little heightened, and the fact that the misunderstanding was going down in front of others, on the screens of our mom friends across the city, also added to the drama. But if it had been just about my dismissive text, we probably would have patched things up pretty quickly. We know each other well, and we're generally understanding about what can be misconstrued when typing quickly into a group conversation while also multitasking. Still, it took me a few days before I realized that the text conflict needed more than a quick apology. The surface of the discord was about me being cavalier about her valid COVID concerns. 
The deeper tangle stemmed from my friend's perception that I never kept her perspective in mind, that I never tried to see anything through her lens, that I imposed my own point of view onto everything and everyone, even when our life circumstances were wildly different. It's true. I can be selfish in relationships. I was already a little bruised from two other recent friend conflicts in which, again, I was the one who had misstepped and had to make things right with women I loved. I had committed the same friendship felony with each. I had failed to respond to their messages. I had ghosted their texts, calls, and voicemails without explanation. And these were not just routine check-ins. One was doing me a massive favor and needed some feedback, and the other was caring for a sick parent and could have used some support. Both of those friends were direct with me about my transgressions, so I couldn't dismiss them or claim they were being high-maintenance. Nope, it was me. I had neglected them and our friendship. I had ceased communicating when that was the thing most required. Then I had blissfully assumed we'd high-five and all would be forgiven. I mean, they knew me, right? I'm flaky sometimes. But was taken aback when both women, separately, had demanded that I change my behavior. Those two friendships had mended because they do know me and believed my sincere apologies. But I had been licking my wounds for a few months, alternately beating myself up and giving myself grace about all the ways I had failed as a friend in my lifetime. A dramatic response, yes, but it had been eye-opening in the same way that everything in that first year of the pandemic was eye-opening, including our friendships. We were suddenly intensely aware of our own mortality and how quickly the world can change and which relationships matter the most. So when that group text went sideways, I inwardly groaned. Another friendship lesson? Hadn't I been hit over the head with this enough? My indignation gave way to a deeper fear. Maybe I was a bad friend. I lit the candles and grabbed blankets against the chilly night just a few moments before my friend walked quietly through the back gate. She wouldn't have knocked or otherwise announced her presence if she was coming in the kitchen door, either. There was never a need. We were that close. She had her long hair back in a high ponytail, and big, chunky jewelry accessorized her tank top and black overalls. I was embracing the loungewear look of the lockdown and had just barely gussied up the yoga pants and brightly colored hoodie combo that had become my daily uniform. We didn't hug hello. Because of the virus, we hadn't hugged in a long time. Physical affection was another thing the pandemic had stolen from us. We chatted awkwardly at first about our kids and some dumb pop culture news. She had brought her own drink and blanket, and for the first few minutes, she held them both tightly to her chest. We started to settle into our chairs, and she grinned broadly at the props and scenery I'd staged in my attempt to create a cozy reverence for this conversation. This broke the ice as we both giggled at the things I had grabbed from the house to adorn the space between our chairs. The truth was, I think that little tableau said a lot about how I wanted the night to go. It showed that I was honoring both her and us. Our friendship was only a few years old, yet it had already forged some of my greatest memories. On that night, I was trying to make up for being flippant about her feelings by going overboard with care for the reconciliation. The tone I set in the backyard that night might have been sweet, or it might have been weird, but ultimately, it worked. Our long conversation was stilted at first, then grew more heated before we finally said enough words to make the other understand our side a little better. When she slipped back through the gate a few hours later to her car in the driveway, things weren't perfect, but we were still friends. It could have gone either way. Later, we confessed to one another that we had braced ourselves for the friendship to end that night, not because of an errant text but because of the dozens of tiny slights that had built up into a mountain that could have felt insurmountable. Did my friend and I ever intend for hurt feelings to become so serious? Of course not. 
And I believe now that we never would have had such a buildup of tension or an obvious misunderstanding if we had been seeing one another in person all along. Communicating solely through a screen for so long impacted our natural rhythm and ability to intuit each other's intentions. In the days leading up to that night, I had crafted an intricate defense for myself in my head, but all of that melted away when I saw her walk through my backyard in person. Yes, we needed to hash out our differences in a hard conversation and offer apologies, but more importantly, we needed to feel the energy of the friendship together to be reminded of its meaning and how much we wanted it to continue. We could have ended something that is a joy for both of us. It happens. But I'm so glad we didn't. These fraught friendship experiences of the last few years made me feel ill-equipped to write this book. But those same conflicts also made me dig deeper into the friendships that sustain me now and to think back on those that have shaped my life. Because I credit my friendships, from the decades-long sisterhoods to the fleeting and seasonal sidekicks, with having influence over my confidence, my favorite memories, my style and taste, my career choices, and even my motherhood. Yet adult friendship isn't talked about with much nuance. We use the term friend to cover a wide swath of relationships in our life, from those who are barely more than an acquaintance to those who would answer our call in the middle of the night. How do those two people deserve the same title? It's not that we don't classify them at all. We understand the difference between best friends and everyone else. But we don't have more specific terminology for the plethora of people in our lives who fall under the large umbrella of friend. At least I didn't until I was introduced to the idea of having a life council, an advisory board of friends, much like a business or organization has an advisory board of professionals, by my friend Chrisanne over 10 years ago during a retreat I hosted at my lake house. As Chrisanne was explaining the concept, we were sitting in a circle of women who had met on the internet and who I had invited to my home after months of chatting in a Facebook group. A weekend of internet strangers turned friends felt like a risk, but this particular group came together online at a time in my life when I was at my loneliness, and their friendship, even through a screen, was a life raft for me when I was drowning in early motherhood. While certain interests drew us together initially, we encompassed a wide range of ages, lifestyles, and personalities, so when Christian suggested that we were all members of one another's life councils, the idea made sense. Christian doesn't remember exactly where she heard about the theory of a life council, but it's clear the idea of surrounding yourself with a committee of sorts has been in the zeitgeist for a while. Oprah Winfrey has talked about having a personal advisory board of people you can trust to help you make big decisions, with an emphasis on friends who have your best interests in mind and not their own. Best-selling author Bruce Feiler wrote a 2010 memoir called Council of Dads about the men who might become father figures to his young daughters after he was diagnosed with bone cancer. And in the rising trend of professional entrepreneur groups, collecting mentors and comrades has been touted as a strong way to succeed in business. Personally, while I liked the concept of a life council, at first it seemed almost juvenile to categorize friends in this way. I didn't want to rank the people I cared about. I didn't want to formalize an inner group of friends in such a way that could leave others out. I resonated with untamed author Glennon Doyle's image of a friendship horseshoe, open and not closed, ever widening. Still, over the last few years, I couldn't escape the research that tells us we're more connected to everyone we've ever met thanks to the internet, and yet we're lonelier than ever. How are we to bridge that gap between having, literally, a million options for friendship 
and the fact that many of us can't seem to make or maintain that elusive best friend or friend group. My relationship blunders over the last few years made me take a step back and consider what matters about my friendships and what type of friend I wanted to be. It also required that I think honestly about how different people fit into my life, schedule, and heart, which felt a bit awkward. I turned to the Life Council framework as a way to classify the different types of women who have shaped me and to see my relationships from a place of gratitude for what they are without trying to fit every female friendship into the mold of what culture tells us friendships should look like. When I began to understand the roles of certain friends, including the role I play in their lives as well, I found acceptance for these different flavors of friendships in my past, present, and future. It allowed me to let go of some disappointments and sadness and gave me real hope for the friendships to come. After my friendship reckoning of 2020, I vowed to put effort into and attention towards these relationships that are continually teaching me how I want to walk in the world. My friends are among the greatest joys of my life. I don't take them for granted because I've been through the lonely years. I don't live in the naivete that all friendships last forever because I've been through loss. I do carry the responsibility that my friendships deserve because I now understand that it's often more work than we acknowledge. Long before I gave any of them a title on my life council, I was made better by having these women in my life. This book is about the work and joy of friendship. Our culture gives a lot of attention to other relationships in our adult lives, like marriage and parenthood and healthy boundaries in the workplace or with in-laws. And we're led to believe that friendships should be easy, that they should be fun in the good times and helpful in the hard times, and that they should just show up naturally. But no one really tells us how to make friends or release friends, or how to think about friendship when it gets complicated. Making friends isn't easy or natural for all of us. Friendship breakups are treated like melodrama instead of heartbreak. There are no rule books for how to handle a friendship that has layers of good and bad. I'm only a friendship expert on my own friendships, much like you're an expert on your own friendships. But I've spent years writing and talking about this online. This book comes from hundreds of hours of discussions on social media, recorded on my podcast, and from my own life, and I want this book to be an extension of those conversations. In these pages, we're going to talk about giving our friendships the reverence they deserve and how to take a step back and look at them as an important aspect of a wholehearted life. We're going to acknowledge the pain that comes when friendships end, and we're going to open our eyes to the freedom that a good friendship offers. But while I will lay out for you my friendship philosophies and the life counsel I've assembled for myself, these thoughts are not prescriptive. It's meant to be a conversation starter in your own life or in your own journal or with your own friends, an interactive conversation in book form. I hope it makes you think about your past and present friendships in a new way and that it inspires more connection. When you're done reading the life counsel, I hope you feel more equipped to serve, Love and enjoy your friendships, whatever their number. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca 
style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season they make high quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, and use code U, Y-O-U. Five friendship philosophies. Number one, friendship is a to-do. Number two, believe the best. Number three, just go. Number four, like every selfie. Number five, your spouse is not your best friend. We learned most of our friendship habits and ideas early in life, when caregivers plopped us on the floor and we were forced to get along with whatever sibling or playmate was on that blanket with us. We were most likely encouraged to share our toys, admonished not to hit one another, and told to stay in a general proximity. We weren't given much of a choice about when the playing began or ended, and all of this was the beginning of learning how to be in relationships with one another. When we got to be school age, friendship rules were explicitly spelled out and simple enough for everyone to understand. We were taught to share, take turns, be inclusive, be kind. These are great rules for relationships. But if that was the last time anyone gave you clear instructions on how to be a good friend, there have surely been bumps in the road along the way since then. As we grew, we probably went on to experience some sort of friendship angst in our younger years. Friends moved away, friends hurt our feelings, we didn't get invited to the birthday, we were targeted by mean girls, or we were the mean girls ourselves. Or perhaps we didn't experience friendship drama so much as we didn't have any friends at all. Middle school can be rough. 
In the teen years, the issues were more or less the same, but the stakes were higher. Our loneliness increased or our feelings were hurt more deeply. Hopefully, we received some well-meaning advice from our moms or sisters or teachers or summer camp counselors, but maybe not. We will carry what we learn about friendship in our earliest years into the rest of our lives. If we don't stay attuned to how things change, we will let old hurts and insecurities rule our emotions and actions in adulthood without making the allowance that everyone else has grown up too. Every new and old friend you will ever have has a friendship past, just like you do. So it can be helpful to identify some general philosophies as guideposts for our friendships, especially for the seasons when we're struggling. Time and circumstances require a little more nuance than the first friendship rules we learned in kindergarten. I think it's a worthy experiment to think about your friendship philosophies from a grown-up perspective. Think about the rules you were taught about being a good friend, which are likely ingrained in you, and then ask yourself if you still believe them to be true. As you do this, you'll see that we're all operating from a set of friendship philosophies, whether we formalized them or not. Start by brainstorming what you like about certain friendships, and then brainstorm what hasn't worked so well in the past. In the final section of the book, we're going to talk about what we value in individual people, but here we're talking about overall guidelines to help us bring our best selves to our relationships. In both of these exercises, you might surprise yourself by how you define what matters and what doesn't. My most important friendship philosophies are these. Friendship philosophy number one. Friendship is a to-do. This is a new practice for me, but it's one of the things I believe most helped my friendships over the last couple of years. Friendship is an item on your to-do list, just like cleaning the bathroom or getting your oil changed. I do not want this to be true. I want to be a person who does friendship organically and wholeheartedly, a person who is generous and loving and known for her strong relational priorities. Alas, I'm actually an anxious, introverted, working mother with a screen addiction and a tendency towards procrastination. The in-person fun part of friendship comes naturally to me. The mundane work of it does not. The truth is, friendship is work. People don't talk about that enough. We hear about how marriage is work and parenthood is work, but somehow maintaining healthy relations with our friends is supposed to be effortless, but I don't find that to be true. I want to remember that my friend is up for a promotion or that she's having a minor surgery next Tuesday or that her beloved cat just died. And I want to send flowers or a note or a text for all of these things. But without reminders, I will not. Maintaining care for the best friends in my life is emotional labor. Sometimes it's physical labor. It's not all margaritas and memories. Oh yes, I've seen the memes that float around the internet about being or wanting a low-maintenance friend. And there are definitely seasons when you have to give all you can to your family or your job, and the work of friendship isn't something you can take on. I also see the value in having a decidedly low-maintenance friend with low expectations all around. But that's not going to go the distance. Someone is going to hit a rough patch. Someone is going to lose their job or get a divorce and need a shoulder and a hand. Someone is going to get a diagnosis. That someone might be you. 
the work of friendship turns out to be worth it. When I started thinking about my closest friendships as part of my to-do list, not as a chore, but as a priority that needed to be attended to, my friendships changed, and my friends noticed. I use a notepad for my daily to-do lists, and on each page I have three sections, personal, work, and connection. The personal and work sections are self-explanatory, but the connection section usually has items listed like text Yasmin, Vox Brie, check Sarah's Instagram feed. Something like buy Ashley a birthday present would be on my personal to-do list because that's a tangible to-do item and not really about connection in the same way. I add people to the connection to-do list when they pop into my mind or as a reminder to reach out for a specific reason. There's a circle of friends with whom I check in regularly at least once a week, and then long-term or long-distance friends who hear from me once a month or so, and then a handful of people in my life whom I love dearly, but realistically, we only interact a few times a year. If they weren't on my to-do list, it might dwindle to even less than that. In one of my recent friendship struggles, I had a good friend tell me candidly that being on my to-do list hurt her feelings. She wanted me to think of her instinctively, to reach out without prompting, and not because I set an alarm in my calendar, something I'm also known to do. I was taken aback by her response because, if anything, I hope a friend would feel flattered that I am making an effort where I previously have so often dropped the ball. But she took it as a reduction of our spiritual bond. I got defensive at first, of course, but then I sat with it and tried to understand where she was coming from. She wanted to feel like one of my best friends, which she is and not simply someone on a list, which can feel like a drudgery. I wanted to stop feeling so flaky and had made some adjustments in my day and mindset in order to prioritize close relationships with people who do not live in my house. It was an impasse. We love one another dearly, but we think about life and relationships in very different ways. By the end of our thorny conversation, I believe we came to an understanding of each other's hearts in the matter even if we still didn't completely grasp each other's point of view. She agreed to try and see my new tactics as an act of love and not a chore, and I agreed to make my check-ins with her seem less scheduled. Your approach to the work of friendship might look different from mine, just like any item on your to-do list will look different from mine. But if we can give ourselves the tools to succeed in our most important relationships— including treating them by our actions with the same reverence with which we hold them emotionally, our friendships will be stronger and more deeply woven into the fabric of our lives. Friendship philosophy number two, believe the best. I believe all relationships go more smoothly when we assume positive intentions. I'm not trying to be unrealistically positive in the face of friendship complications. But when we jump to negative conclusions about a friend's behavior, we are often wrong and create a rift where there wasn't one. When something seems off with a friend, maybe they're not returning our texts, or maybe they forgot our birthday, or maybe we were on the receiving end of a casually snide remark, what if, instead of assuming that they're mad at us, that they no longer like us, that they're secretly out to get us, we assign neutral intent? It doesn't mean you're being naive or gullible if you decide that they're busy or that a comment wasn't personal. We can actively choose to believe our friends have the best of intentions, 
just as we hope they would believe the best about us. This doesn't mean we should always let these kinds of slights slide. By all means, we have every right to expect a friend to call us back and to not say hurtful things, even if they're teasing. But unless it's a pattern in their behavior or character, which warrants a deeper look at continuing the friendship at all, believing the best in someone takes less energy than assuming the worst. Trauma and past unhealthy situations may very well give us reason to be suspicious or defensive in our friendships. I'm sure we can all think of someone who has given us plenty of reason not to believe the best of them or of anyone. I get it. But after my periods of not being the greatest friend myself, I'm grateful for those who gave me grace along the way. They knew I was simply overwhelmed when I had to cancel plans or exhausted when I spoke too sharply. Sometimes I was called out. Sometimes I realized the mistake and corrected it myself. Sometimes my behavior was just ignored. But my close friends always came from a place of believing I was a good person with a good heart. And if they'd believed anything else, I'm not sure we could have overcome the offense. My anxious brain defaults to assuming that someone is mad at me or that they're seconds away from being mad at me. When I was younger and much more judgmental of others, I thought everyone else was sitting in judgment too. And this made me do a constant tap dance of justification of my own actions and demand explanations for theirs. I used to keep score, and I wouldn't call, text, or email someone back if it was their turn. I didn't want to go to their birthday dinner if they'd blown off mine. I slowly grew out of the need for such strangling control over the people in my life, and that maturity was freedom. The next obvious step was to start continually believing in the best of intentions from those I wanted to assume good intentions from me. Obviously, we don't want a friendship to be a one-way street, but sweating the small stuff in friendship is often a recipe for disappointment. I can't keep score with the people I love. It won't always be an even exchange. But in a healthy friendship, it all seems to shake out. If it doesn't, well, that's worth further examination. Sometimes our own insecurities cause us to be suspicious, territorial, and controlling. Deciding to believe the best in my friends and expecting them to believe the best in me has infused my relationships with love. Friendship philosophy number three, just go. This is a personal directive that has shifted over the years depending on my life circumstances, but I noticed decades ago that I rarely regret going to dinner or on the trip or to the party. And often, I do regret not going. There are always reasons not to go. Finances or a breastfeeding baby or a calendar conflict are legitimate excuses to bow out of anything. And sometimes we may need the self-care that comes with not going. But when we do go, even if it costs us some sleep or some money or is inconvenient, our very presence opens the door to connection and memory-making and being known as a person who shows up. Because we cannot replace face-to-face time. Technology has given us a million ways to stay in touch and post photos and make video calls, which is better than not connecting at all. But nothing beats a hug 
an in-person congratulations, or a shared conversation with every nuance of body language, laughter, and eye contact. I put a high priority on the milestones in life, like weddings and funerals and other major events. I've decided that I must just go to those things. And unless there's a glaring reason to do so, I will not weigh the pros and cons or agonize over that decision. If it's within my ability to be there, I will. When I was growing up, this was a given. You go to people's big events. I'm not sure when it became optional. Maybe because events got more extravagant, therefore requiring more of the attendees' time, money, or effort. Or because we've somehow decided that certain things don't matter anymore. But our presence does matter. There is a spiritual communion among friends when you show up for the big moments. A few years ago, I made the effort to attend my high school reunion in Oklahoma, and I was shocked at who came and who didn't. People who were still local to our hometown didn't even attempt to swing by, while those of us who lived hundreds of miles away arrived with bells on. I know many people have no desire to attend reunions, but that weekend, I reconnected with classmates I hadn't talked to in 20 years. Sure, we were Facebook friends. I already knew where they lived, how many kids they had, but the in-person energy could never be replicated through a screen. Stories came to the surface that never would have if we hadn't been sitting together, feeding off one another's collective memories. I flew back to California with a full heart and an even better understanding of my childhood. I also have a group of far-flung friends I met on the internet, the same women who were there when Chrisanne taught us about life councils who have played an enormous role in how I've approached friendship over the last 10 years. Our troop started when we were all online blogging all day, every day, and a decade later, our lives don't even look like that anymore. It's been harder and harder to keep up as careers and kids keep us busier and busier, and some have abandoned social media altogether. But regardless of our internet habits, one thing we've maintained is an annual retreat weekend. We spend three days together with absolutely no agenda, just talking and eating and resting and laughing and catching up on all the things. I wait the whole year for that weekend to deeply connect with those women who mean so much to me. Sometimes I miss how it was in the beginning when we all chatted through our screens every single day, but the yearly retreat goes a long way in keeping us close. The group is large enough that it's tough to nurture every individual relationship within it. So instead, I prioritize the in-person gathering. I'm committed to attending that weekend every year that I'm able because this is a part of my just-go philosophy. The big stuff is a given. Just go. What about the smaller stuff? Grabbing coffee, a last-minute double date, a dinner or a walk or a football game watch party. Sometimes I think we wait for the perfect opportunity to be joyfully spontaneous. But that's just not going to happen. When a casual plan starts to come together, you may not love the choice of restaurant or everyone else who is invited or the last minute timing. You have to decide for yourself if it works for you, but don't overthink it. Ask yourself if you'll regret not going and be honest about how much your attendance or absence will affect your relationships. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots. 
and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over five thousand distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. I'm not suggesting you sacrifice your schedule, sleep, and bank account for every little thing. But attendance is part of cultivating relationships. We cannot complain about our loneliness when we're picky about when we'll bless others with our presence. It's also true that the consistency of being together builds deeper friendships, much more so than infrequent meetups. Just go. Err on the side of relationship. Friendship philosophy number four. Like every selfie. This phrase is taken from the poem by David Gate that opens this book. And while the whole piece has become a guiding beacon for me in the last two years with my friendships, these lines in particular make up the core of this philosophy. Like every selfie, all of them, clap their songs, cheer them on. You were born with a limitless supply of encouragements. Use every one of them. When I first read this poem on Instagram, not only did it touch my soul, it also gave me an immediate directive. Like every selfie. All of them. Look, I understand that cheering on our friends isn't always as simple as that. Sometimes we have resentments or jealousies or secondhand embarrassment about the way friends act or post online. Sometimes we don't want to encourage them in the wrong direction if it seems like the new career or romance or hairstyle isn't in their best interest. It can be exhausting to fulfill an obligation to like every selfie. It can feel inauthentic when you don't really like whatever it is they're putting out. But does it matter? Are we culture critics who need to reserve our five-star reviews? Our honest and thoughtful reputations are not in danger when we tell a friend that they look fabulous regardless of our actual opinion. There's a time and place for intervention, like when we become truly concerned about a friend's decisions. But most of our daily lives include hundreds of little ways to encourage someone. Likes and high fives and quick text emojis are a low bar for all of us to feel generous and for others to feel like we care, because we do. Not to mention that withholding such generosity can feel like poison. In one of my informal Instagram polls, my messages exploded when I posed the question, do you notice when friends don't like, comment, or react to your posts? The responses were all over the place, a fair mix between not caring at all and lengthy stories of how hurtful it feels when friends and family 
who are otherwise active online refuse to react to what we share on social media. In all of the various conversations I host on the internet, this one had the widest range of shame and vitriol spilling from the comments. It was fascinating to read all the rules and walls and justifications we've constructed around online behavior. Since we can all agree that social media interactions cannot replace in-person relationships, and also that within years, these trends and platforms will be completely obsolete, you'd think none of it should carry much weight in our friendships. And yet here I am, making it one of my five friendship philosophies. Of course, it's not really about the likes or the selfies. It's about the big and small ways we can cheer on one another without getting into an emotional tangle about it. It's a reminder to myself that not everything has to be so overanalyzed and that, in fact, this analysis is killing our instinctive connections. So now, I do not waste one second of my life with my finger hovering over the like button, metaphorically or literally, when it comes to my friends. If there's a chance to cheer them on, I take it. Friendship philosophy number five. Your spouse is not your best friend. I developed this philosophy after expecting Jeff to be my everything early on in our marriage led to some intense loneliness. I remind myself of this tenet whenever I've gone too long without catching up with a friend or going out for a girl's dinner or when some sappy social media post has me in my feelings about the way other couples exist in their marriages. Whenever I share that my spouse is not my best friend, I get either a chorus of amens or people who secretly think my marriage is in trouble. In the end, this may just be a difference in marriage dynamics and labels, but I like to talk about this topic as a way to release the cultural idea that your life partner should be your best friend. There's nothing wrong if your marriage has an entirely separate energy than your friendships. My husband, Jeff, is not my best friend, and our marriage got better once I identified that. Now, when someone declares they've married their best friend, I inwardly cringe. We all know what they mean. They married the person they feel closest to in the world. Maybe it even has double meaning in that they were friends before they were lovers. That's my love story with Jeff. We were close friends for two years before anything romantic transpired between us. And yet, Jeff is still not my best friend. We've been married for 15 years, and he is the most important person in my life. He's my first call with good or bad news. He's my most trusted sounding board. He's my partner, but he is not my best friend. Maybe this is all semantics. Maybe it all hinges on how one defines a best friend and whether they find it romantic to marry one's best friend. I feel strongly on this issue because in the first years of our marriage, I fell into the trap of wanting Jeff to be my best friend. After all, our relationship was built on those previous years of friendship. But I quickly found out that expecting one person to fulfill all of the most important roles of adult relationships left us both frustrated. It was unfair for him and lonely for me. The best friends I've had throughout my lifetime, at any age, fill my cup in a way that my husband does not. I am a distinctive version of myself with my friends. 
and our conversations together are wildly different from those with any romantic partner. Jeff doesn't understand four-hour dinners that include crying and belly laughing and long stories with too many tangents. He doesn't want to engage in the hours of analysis my friends and I spend covering the minutia of our childhoods or whether we should cut bangs. One of the great benefits of my best friends is that our discussions can vacillate between our traumas and our current style choices with ease. For what it's worth, I'm not interested in most of the conversations he has or activities he engages in with his best friends either. This also isn't completely gender-specific. My oldest friend, Drew, was a groomsman in my wedding. We grew up in the same small town. Drew is now a scientist in New York City. He's been the other half of my marathon gab sessions since he started to walk me home in the third grade, and we have a verbal shorthand that moves too quickly for Jeff to catch. He is one of my best friends, and he is not my husband. So maybe the difference here is about romantic friendships versus platonic ones. With my husband, there's a constant underlying attraction that becomes sexual chemistry. And then there are also the day-to-day mundane parts of our life that includes co-parenting, household duties, and crafting a future together. It's a partnership that has different complexities than a friendship. Friendships have their own sets of obligations, but those usually don't demand major decision-making together. My friends and I may try to keep things fair by splitting the check or divvying up the task list for a trip or party, but we're not looking at the big picture of money or family or lifetime dynamics. Time with friends mostly nets fun, while time with my spouse is so ongoing that it just is. Our marriage worked a lot better when I realized I needed to have best friends outside of my marriage. I needed to talk and laugh and connect and spend time with people who didn't share a bathroom with me. I appreciated my marriage more when I had other important people in my life who knew me on a soul level. Jeff and I fought less when he wasn't my whole world. The pressure I put on both of us during my lonely years could have sunk us both. And believe me, Jeff is relieved I have people who will chatter on with me for hours. I feel lucky that I can do the chattering and then return home to crawl into bed with the person I've created a life with. These two things work in harmony in more ways than one. Jeff is quick to notice if a friendship brings me joy and peace or if it's draining. My friends aren't afraid to ask what's going on in my marriage. There is a checks and balances among these relationships that can be useful for seeing what is hard to see for yourself. Years ago, upon returning home from yet another girls' weekend where I was weepy and annoyed, Jeff gently suggested that maybe I stop going on that annual adventure. It had been a while since I'd enjoyed it, but I wasn't willing to admit that maybe these particular women and I were growing apart. I probably would have gone on that same girls' trip every spring until the end of time and never considered that stepping away was an option, especially since just go is one of my most important friendship philosophies. It took someone who saw me every day to see that the trip was defeating and not uplifting. Likewise, after a rough patch in our marriage, I sat on the counter in my kitchen and told three of my life council friends that marriage was hard and I was done putting any effort into it. I didn't want a divorce, but I was done trying to make it better all the time. Whatever happened, happened. They listened thoughtfully 
and then reminded me that I was really, really tired. That winter, I was exhausted. There was a lot going on in our lives, and it felt easier to blame it on Jeff than to work on some of the hard things. My friends didn't try to convince me that my marriage venting was wrong, but in some ways, they could see the situation more clearly than I could. My best friends grant me laughter and grace that isn't tangled up in who made the vet appointment or how messy the bedroom is, and the affirmation of those friendships allows me to function with less neediness in my marriage. This is a core friendship philosophy for me because it's a reminder that we need more than one close relationship in our lives. When I'm out of sorts with family life, I plan a dinner with my friends to spend a few hours just being me. My spouse is my spouse, and my best friends are my best friends. They're not the same thing, and all of my relationships are better for it. These are the philosophies that are most important to my friendships, and once I'd clarified them, it made many relationship decisions easier. Note that some philosophies may change over time or when you move into a new season of life. How we behave online in our friendships is part of the conversation that didn't exist 20 years ago, but is a regular part of navigating relationships now. The etiquette surrounding this changes regularly, enough to make some people give up on the social part of social media entirely. But in my own life, it's something I want to pay attention to. I also had different friendship philosophies when I was single in my 20s and when I was drowning in my 30s than I have now in my 40s. Sometimes it takes a little time to realize that your priorities or your own behaviors have changed. For example, as a young adult, I cared a lot about trustworthiness. In my post-college years, as I was finding myself, I held a lot of secrets and discretion was a must. With more life experience, the secure knowledge that everyone has their own stuff, and nearly two decades of sharing myself on the internet, my ideas of privacy have definitely morphed. Of course, I still need to be able to trust my friends, but in my 40s, this is more about their character than nitpicking individual actions. I am no longer suspicious of people's trustworthiness because I rarely make friends at this stage who don't have a trustworthy nature. Also, the types of friendship we're drawn to naturally shifts with life stages. During the baby and toddler years, I desperately wanted new friends, but the effort it took to get to know someone was beyond my reach during those seasons of sleepless nights. I leaned heavily on people who already knew me and whom I already knew. I wish someone had given me permission to let that be enough back then, because now that my kids are older, I have more space in my life for new friendships. Brainstorm some of your own friendship philosophies, guideposts, or principles. Think about behaviors and rules you're already abiding by, such as always picking up when friends call or taking them out to a birthday lunch each year, and go from there. Being honest with yourself about personality and capacity will be more effective than trying to force yourself to fit into the box that movies and culture tell us friendship looks like. You may decide that some of your friendship habits are ready for a refresh. Committing friendship philosophies to paper is by no means a requirement to strengthening your own relationships, but it was a helpful exercise for me. If you just have no idea where to start, pay attention to your friendships over the next few weeks or months and notice what works well and what could use some improvement. 
Now that you've learned about my friendship history, my recent friendship foibles, and the philosophies I've built for approaching my friendships, let's look at the 10 types of friendships I am prioritizing, the people I've christened my life council. You've just listened to a sample of the audiobook version of The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs, launching April 4th by me, Laura Tremaine. If you liked what you heard here and you want to read the whole book, you can pre-order The Life Council from your favorite retailer in any version you want, audiobook, ebook, hardcover, or paperback, all of which will be available at launch. If you do pre-order The Life Council before April 4th and you want to claim your pre-order bonuses, go to thelifecouncilbookbonuses.com. To learn more about The Life Council, go to thelifecouncilbook.com. Thanks for listening. I can't wait for The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs to be out in the world.